Vampires. What a loaded word that brings many images to your mind's eye. Some people think they are real. Some think they're nothing more than fiction. But the vampire tales have been scattered through our history. For example, in ancient Rome when a gladiator was struck down inside the arena and as the blood poured out from his body, spectators might see another man running towards the corpse. He would drop to his knees beside the slain gladiator and place his lips against a bloody wound. There, he would drink the blood as if he were a vampire. Such a sight was not too uncommon. The man drinking the gladiator's blood would have been an epileptic who was told that his only sure cure for the affliction would be to drink the blood directly from a gladiator's wound. If the gladiator had been gutted, spectators would have witnessed an entirely different scene. People from the crowd would have rushed to grab a piece of the warrior's liver. The liver was then sold to the sufferers of epilepsy, who were instructed to take nine separate doses of the gladiator's liver in order to be free of the disease. I'm pretty sure that's not the romantic tale of the vampires that we have today. But another fun fact, the image of the seductive nightwalkers we think of today was majorly shaped by pop culture dating back to the 1800s. The seeds of the modern concept have appeared in mythology since the beginning of recorded history. The story, a segment, the Egyptian feline warrior goddess associated with both plague and healing is considered by some to be one of the oldest vampire tales. Legend holds that the sun god Ra sent his daughter Sekhmet down to punish humankind for their disobedience. But after Sekhmet couldn't stop drinking blood, amid her slaughter, Ra quenched her planet-draining thirst by dyeing a bunch of beer red. Basically, she guzzled it all and slept for three days. Lilith, a 4,000-year-old figure in Jewish folklore who in some stories was Adam's wife before Eve, had a monstrous rep as well, especially in ancient Babylonia. Her name derives from a Sumerian word for female demons or wind spirit. Lilith. According to scholar J.A. Skurlock, the Babylonians believed the Lilithu were hungry for victims because they had once been human and slipped through windows into people's houses looking for victims to take the place of husbands and wives whom they themselves never had. While the image of Lilith as a deadly, hungry temptress has endured for centuries, Lilith was the first vampire in true blood, for example. Many cultures have some equivalent of a life-draining creature. In the Philippines, for another example, there's the Manaanaka, <laughs> try saying that three times fast, who some believe can shapeshift into a woman and sucks blood from the bellies of pregnant women and, oh yeah, hates garlic. 
But the vampires that we think of today, well, let's be honest, we mainly think of Europe. And Europe itself has a very, very strong history with vampires. In the Middle Ages, variations on early vampire mythology proliferated across Europe with the nefarious monsters often used to explain plagues and other diseases. And we've long associated vampires with Transylvania, an historic region of Romania, in large part because it's where the fictional Dracula originally hailed from. And that was an intentional choice of Bram Stoker's part. In Romania, fears of the vampire once human monsters who needed blood to survive has circulated for hundreds of years. In fact, in 2005, the Guardian covered a vampire slaying ritual in a Romanian village performed after deceased laborer Petro Tomo's family decided he'd become a vampire. Six men exhumed the body, staked it, sprinkled it with garlic, and opened Tomo's ribcage with a pitchfork. They took out his heart, burnt it, and drank the ashes in a glass of water. In neighboring Bulgaria, a 700-year-old skeleton discovered in 2012 points to the region's own vampire-slaying custom. Pinned down with a rock to keep the dead from rising, it had also been stabbed through the chest with an iron rod. And his teeth? Well, his teeth had been removed, so he couldn't bite. And meanwhile, in a mass grave of 16th century of plague victims unearthed by archaeologists in Italy in 2006, a brick was wedged into one female skeleton jaw, an exorcism technique used on suspected vampires in Europe at the time. While other researchers have since posted that the brick simply fell into the skull's mouth while in the grave, anti-vampire rituals were a reality in both Europe and eventually the United States. But we'll get to the United States shortly. But here today I have a special friend from France, who's going to tell us a little bit about vampire lore in France. And by the way, this is the season finale of season one of Not Another Horror Podcast. Interview with a Vampire, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Lost Souls. American depiction of the vampire law has been dominant around the world, and as a French guy, I was immersed in these stories and they became part of my culture. But when I've started looking up on European stories, it showed me that the old country do have some weird tales that I would try to share with you today. Even before Bram Stoker immortalized Transylvania as the homeland of his fictional Count Dracula, the figure of the vampire was inextricably tied to the Eastern Europe in the popular imagination. 
the popularization of the word vampire did not happen until after the influx of Western European vampire superstition during the 18th centuries. In Britain, the belief in the vampire epidemic reached its height between 1723 and 1735 and can be compared to that in Serbia and Hungary. The term vampire in English can be found actually in 1734, which derived from the French vampire. As far as ancient history is concerned, vampirism was a part of Babylonian belief noted by references in Chaldean and Assyrian clay tablets. The belief in vampires differed from ancient Greece, Rome, across Europe through Austria, Hungary, Poland, Romania, Lorraine in France, and even to Iceland. The vampire appeared to have originated in Southeast and Slavic Europe during the 18th century. The shared common feature of this revenant, or risen dead, had derived from witches, from suicides, malevolent spirits, sorcerers, and shriven corpses, and those unfortunate to have been beaten by a vampire. The vampire appears to have originated in Southeast and Slavic Europe during the 18th century. The shared common feature of this revenant, or risen dead, are derived from witches, from suicides, malevolent spirits, sorcerers, unshriven corpses, and those unfortunate who have been beaten by a vampire. The myths concerning a vampire have a number of shared features, which include the death of an evil one, the return of the revenant of the undead, a breach of burial ritual protocols, and the alleged magical properties of human blood. According to European legend and folklore, vampires are repelled by sunlight, garlic and crucifixes, as well as dispatched by an earth the skull, thorny rose placed on the skin, a stake through the body or heart, and decapitation. The stake is preferably made of white thorn or from the ash tree. In France, um, when the idea of the vampire was introduced at the end of the 17th century, it was an unfamiliar topic. The subject seems to have been raised initially in 1693, when a Polish priest asked the faculty of the Sorbonne to counsel him on how he should deal with corpses that has been identified as vampire. That same year, a newspaper report of vampire in Poland appeared in a French periodical, Mercure Galant. A generation later, Les Lettres Juives, published in 1737, included the account of several of the famous Serbian vampire cases. However, the issue of vampirism was not raised for the French public until the 1746 publication of Dom Augustin Calumet, Dissertation sur les apparitions des anges et des esprits, et sur les revenants et vampires de Ingrid, de Bohème, de Moravie, et de Silesie. This treaty by the French Bible scholar continued the vampire debate that has been centered in the German university. The debate had reached a negative conclusion concerning the existence of vampires, and Calmet called for what he thought of as a more biblical and scientific views, which considered the account of vampirism in Eastern Europe and called for further study. While not accepted by his colleague, the book was a popular success, reprinted in 1747 and 1748, and translated in several foreign languages. Calmet brought the debate into the Parisian Salon, and he soon found a number of detractors. Voltaire, 
reacted sarcastically and spoke of businessmen as a real bloodsucker. Diderot followed a similar line in his Salon of 1767. Only Jack Rousseau argued in support of Calme and his rational approach to the evidence. I also found several historical figures that has been cited as actual vampires. Gilles de Rais, a hero of France, was a brilliant general who fought with Joan of Arc, but was also a man known to have few equals as a sadistic murderer. He tortured and killed a number of young boys and a few girls, receiving intense sexual gratification in the process. He also practiced a form of Satanism. It was only with great difficulty that he was brought to trial. Upon conviction, he was strangled and his body burned. <laughs> Somewhat different was the Vicomte of Moriève, a French nobleman who, by strange fortune, kept his estate through the period of the French Revolution. Following the revolution, he took out his animosity against the common people by executing many of his employees one by one. Eventually, he was assassinated. Soon after his burial, a number of young children died unexpectedly. According to reports, they all had vampire marks on them. This account continued for some 72 years. Finally, his grandson decided to investigate the charges that his grandfather was a vampire. In the presence of local authority, he had the vault opened. While all the corpses had undergone the expected decomposition, the vicomte corpses were still fresh and free of decay. The face was flushed and there was blood in the heart and chest. New nails had grown and the skin was soft. The body was removed from its resting place and a white thorn was driven into the heart. As blood gushed forth, the corpse made a groaning sound. The remains were then burned. There were no more reports of unusual deaths of children from that day forward. J.A. Middleton, who originally wrote of de Moray, discovered that he had been born in Persia, married an Indian, and later moved to France as a naturalized citizen. She believed that he had brought his vampirism with him from the East. While the de Moriev case carried many of the elements of traditional European vampirism, that of François Bertrand did not. During the 1840s, Bertrand, a sergeant in a French army, desecrated a number of graves in Paris before being caught in 1849. After opening graves, he would mutilate bodies in a ghoul-like fashion. His story became the basis of a famous novel, Werewolf of Paris, by Guy Andor. If the image of the vampire became more of a symbol for working-class oppression in France during the Age of Enlightenment, we can find some very disturbing cases if we look towards the East. The story of Pierre Plogorjovitz is particularly disturbing. Our story takes place in 1725 and was mentioned by the Imperial Army away in the village of Kisilova in Serbia. Pierre had been dead 10 weeks before and buried following all local rites. Nine people died in the village, victim of a fever that killed them in 24 hours. 
before dying. The victim confessed having seen Pierre come close to them during the night and strangle them. The villagers decided to exhume the body. The official report of an imperial administrator described what they discovered. The tomb of Pierre Plogojovitz was opened. I was able to observe indeed, and in all truth, that the corpse did not exhale any bad odor, but that, on the contrary, it seemed to have remained in perfect condition, as in his lifetime, with the exception of the nose, which was a little wrinkled. The hair and beard had grown, the old nails had fallen out, and in place others had formed. The skin, whitish, was peeling, and in places you could see another growing below. The face, hand and feet, and whole body were so well preserved that it looked like life had never left him. It was not without astonishment that I noticed fresh blood in the mouth of the corpse and which must have come, according to the common opinion in such cases, from the people whom the vampire had killed recently. After such a spectacle, and in front of the distress and horror of the population, the priest and I had to let the villagers cut a long wooden stake and drive it through the body of the deceased. When they pierced his heart, a huge stream of ruddy blood escaped from it, as well as from the mouth and ears, in addition to other strange signs that I will not mention out of decency. But one of the most disturbing cases I've discovered is maybe the one of the village of Medvedia. This macabre account relates perhaps to the most remarkable case of vampirism, as it affected an entire village. The phenomenon grew to such an extent that it attracted the attention of the authorities and Lieutenant Botner of Alexander of Wittenberg's regiment was then dispatched to investigate the matter. An official report was published on January 7, 1732 under the name of Visum und Repertum, which means seen and discovered. A copy of the original manuscript is kept in the archives in Vienna. Lieutenant Butner came to investigate the report that vampires had killed many people in the village by sucking blood from them. The report states, About five years ago, a local idol named Arnold Paole broke his neck when he fell from a hay cart. During his lifetime, this man was often said that near Kasova, in Turkish Persia, he had been molested by a vampire. 20 to 30 days after Paulette's death, people began to complain that they had been visited and tormented by said Pauli. In fact, four people died. To put an end to this danger, the inhabitant dug a Pauli, and this 40 days after his burial, the corpse was found in perfect condition. The flesh was not decomposed. Gleaming blood had flowed from the eyes, nose, mouth and ears. The shirt was also stained with fresh blood. Finally, the old fingernail and the skin of the hands and feet were detached 
to give way to regenerating nails and flesh. When his heart was pierced, as were the custom, with a sharp stake, the deceased uttered a terrible howl, and streams of blood escaped from his body, which was burned that very day. The same ritual was done to the corpses of the four victims of the so-called vampire, because it is said that people killed by a vampire will become one. They also killed the cattle that was apparently been attacked by Paole, as well as the people that had eaten the produce of the animals that has been attacked. You would think that this was the end of the story, but five years later, during the winter of 1731, it happened again, and several inhabitants perished. In a space of three months, 17 people of different genders and ages died of vampirism, some suddenly, others after two or three days of languor. One of these victims, Stanjoska, having gone to bed a fortnight previously in perfect health, uttered a frightful cry one night, complaining that she had been hugged around the neck by a man who had been dead for more than four weeks. From that moment, she only languished and died after three days. The villagers decided to dig up 40 bodies and found 17 of them with all the most obvious signs of vampirism. They pierced their heart, cut off their head, they burned them, they scattered the ashes and have been safe ever since. Some of the people exhumed are described in the report. Let me read the description of two of them. A woman named Stana, who died at 20 years and 3 months, giving birth after an illness lasting 3 days, said she rubbed the blood of a vampire to get rid of any damage possible. The corpse was in excellent condition. On opening the body, a large quantity of fresh blood was discovered. All the viscera were as fresh as a healthy person, but the uterus was distended and inflamed on the outside, the placenta in a state of putrefaction. The skin and nails of the hands and feet fell off while fresh skin appeared, as well as new nails. A woman, Melitza, aged 60, died and was buried 90 days prior. She still had a quantity of liquid blood in her chest. The other parts were all in perfect condition. Her body had become fatter than before her death. She was also seen as a vampire because she had eaten the meat of sheep previously contaminated by vampire. Plenty of stories remain to be told. They all contain as secrets that deserve to be unearthed. Hey there, it's your host and curator of all things strange and unexplained, Anthony Rossetti, and I just want to have a quick heart-to-heart -heart with you. Now, you've probably been wanting to start your own podcast, but can't seem to get the ball rolling or you just don't know where to start. And trust me, I get it. There are a lot of options out there. It's almost overload. But today I'm going to tell you about the easiest way, and that is to download the Anchor app or visit anchor.fm to start your own podcast stress-free. No complicated software or membership fees. It's all free. And they'll even distribute it for you on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can even start earning money right now with no minimum listenership. 
Download the Anchor app to get started today. Now, let's get back to the show. Now, we are back in the United States. Now, the United States is a relatively young country. But, we do have a vampire origin story. Have you ever heard of the Casket Girls? The Casket Girls of New Orleans, but they actually came to Mobile, Alabama first. You see, they arrived in 1728. The port of New Orleans bustled with activity. The shouting of men, the stamping hooves of the horses, the scraping of boxes as the ships were unloaded for the group of young women aboard the ship. New Orleans was a taste of the forbidden, of the unknown. The women were ushered down the wooden plank onto the soiled ground to their chests. They each clutched a coffin-shaped cassette, or a small chest that held all of their belongings. After nearly six months traversing through rough waters of the Atlantic Ocean, the young women were eager to make their arrival. Eager and perhaps also a bit nervous about their welcome. Handpicked by the Bishop of Quebec, on order of the French king, the young women were all of appropriate age and background. On their agenda was only one thing, to make a good match and marry one of the French colonists inhabiting the budding Louisiana colony. Upon the sight of them, however, rumors began to circulate throughout the town. Perla, the Frenchmen all murdered to themselves, as they spotted the women meant to become their brides. So very pale were the girls that their skin reddened and blistered within moments of enduring the hot, subtropical sun. Clutching their casket-shaped chests in tight grips, the young women Felessa la Cassette, as they became known were brought to their new home until their respective marriages. They were to remain under the care and the protection of the Ursuline nuns. The fate of the Philosa La Cassette was not as we expected. The local men gravely disrespected the women. Some were placed in unwanted marriages only to be mistreated by their husbands. Others, upon finding themselves alone and unwed, were forced into prostitution. The French king had had enough. He demanded the girls return to France, the sisters of the Ursuline Covenant, then took the casket-shaped chest that had once carried everything that the Felessa La Cassette had owned, and climbed the steps to the third floor of the convent. Up until this time, the windows and doors to the third floor had always been sealed shut and they remained so at that time as well. But a short time later, when the nuns returned to the third floor, they found that the chest, they were completely empty. They spared no section of the third floor during their search, though the belongings were never recovered, fearing that the young women might have been something other than what they said they were. The Ursuline nuns spared no expense in making sure that nothing 
ever left that third floor. The doors were bolted shut. The nails to the windows were blessed by the Pope himself and locked in place. The whispering began anew, but this time they added one more word. Vampire. In 1978, two paranormal investigators seeking answers to whether the Phyllis Alakasset had in fact been vampires, camped out directly in front of the old Ursuline Covenant. They had been previously kicked off the property itself for loitering, but decided to stay the night and see if they experienced anything right outside the walls themselves. The hours passed, tricking by minute by minute. So slow was it that sleep overtook them. And in their slumber, they failed to notice the third floor shutters. The same ones which had been locked, shut by the blessed nails, open and shut, open and shut, the recording cameras whirled to a stop as the scene faded to black. The next morning, the bodies of the investigators were found. Their bodies had been torn open, ravaged as if by the claws of an animal. Their bodies drained of blood. Vampires, Philosophicassette, it was all one and the same. No, New Orleans goes hand in hand with vampires. And if you ever watched the show, the originals, you think maybe it was based off some real people. Well, not real, real, but two vampire brothers terrorized the city of New Orleans. Their names, well, the Carter brothers, John and Wayne. They seemed normal in every aspect. It was the 1930s in New Orleans and the brothers made their living on the Mississippi River. One day before returning home from work, it is said that a young girl had escaped from their apartment in the French Quarter and ran to the authorities. The girl's wrists were both cut, not deeply enough to have bled to death, but deep enough for each to have been fed upon. The police rushed to the apartment to find four others tied to chairs with their wrists lit in a similar fashion along with over one dozen dead bodies that had been drained of their blood. The story was that these brothers used to kidnap people to drink their blood. At the end of every day, they came from work. The authorities patiently awaited for the brothers to return from work. When they did, it took all eight of them to hold down and detain the brothers who were of average height and build. Later, when these brothers were finally executed for their crimes, their bodies were laid to rest in a vaulted tomb. Years later, when the next Carter passed, the vault was opened to receive his body. Upon opening the tomb, it was reported that the bodies of John and Wayne were gone. No remains, no remnants, gone. The rumor is that you become a vampire if a vampire drinks your blood seven days in a row. 
One of the victims found in the Carter's brother's apartment became a serial killer, taking lives of more than 32 people. It was reported that he too drank the blood of his victims. In New Orleans, the Carter brothers are still feared because many people have reported their presence in the French Quarter, even by the new owner of the apartment building where the Carters once called home. The owner reported seeing the two men whispering on the third floor balcony. Upon realizing that they had been spotted, the Carter brothers sprang from the balcony to the street below and disappeared into the night. Another popular vampire tale in the city of New Orleans is that of Jacques Saint Germain. According to the story, sometimes in the early 1900s, a mysterious man arrived in New Orleans under the name of Jacques Saint Germain. Handsome, elegant, wealthy, entertaining, extravagant, mysterious, and a bit curious. His reputation preceded him. And he was soon a hit in New Orleans society. The eccentric Jacques Saint Germain is said to have taken residence at the home located at 1039 Royal Street. Saint Germain was apparently quite the ladies' man, frequently seen with a beautiful woman on his arm while strolling through the French Quarter or clubbing in elegant locales late into the night. He delighted in throwing elaborate dinner parties for the city's socialites. His parties were highly anticipated due to their lavish cuisine, fine wine, and entertainment. Most relished, however, was his own conversation. Saint Germain fascinated his guests with stories of France, Italy, and Africa. Visitors were delighted and amused by his eloquent grasp of the English language. They were a bit confused, however, when he spoke of events hundreds of years in the past in such precise detail as though he himself had been there. Many guests placed little value in the truth of his tales, simply embracing them for the entertainment value during their visits to his home. Not long after his arrival to New Orleans, Saint Germain claimed he was a direct descendant of the Comte de Saint Germain, a close friend and servant to King Louis XV in the 18th century. His claim aroused skepticism, but his resemblance to the Comte was uncanny. Eagle-eyed guests noted that portraits never depicted the Comte as older than 40, the same age that Jacques Saint Germain had appeared since he'd arrived in New Orleans. Rumors, as they do, started to spread and just that Jacques Saint-Germain may in fact be the very celebrated Comte Saint-Germain himself, somehow rendered immortal and ageless. Jacques seemed to enjoy the mystery he had created around his persona, and neither confirmed nor denied it. Although Saint-Germain catered parties were highly celebrated, the host was said to have relished in his guest's satisfaction of the offered feast without partaking himself often standing apart from the table drinking from a lavish chalice, presumably filled with red wine. During dinner, he offered fantastical recollections of his adventures for his guests' enjoyment, the very strange habit of not partaking in meals at his own soirees, 
coupled with his remarkable resemblance to the Comte Saint-Germain, had summoned the city's suggestion in good fun that perhaps the mysterious man was in fact a vampire. These rumors took a sinister turn several months after Saint-Germain's arrival to New Orleans. When the police were called to Saint-Germain's home to investigate circumstances leading to a woman who had seemingly fallen from his gallery a full story above, his guest, a woman who was rumored to have been a prostitute, and in fact leapt from his balcony rather than fallen as bystanders had originally summarized. While she survived the fall, she was terrified. People on the street surrounded her and tended to her needs while help was rounded. Hysterical, the woman ranted that she had jumped to escape St. Germain, who had bitten her neck. She screamed and sobbed out her story, claiming she was only able to escape when her assailant was briefly distracted by a rather loud knocking on the door. The woman was taken to the hospital as soon as possible. And the police, suspecting that she had become delusional, told the very well-known, affluent, and respected Saint-Germain not to bother coming in for questioning at this late hour, but rather to please visit the police station in the morning to go over the accounts of the evening. The police were confident that there was a reasonable explanation for what had transpired. The next morning, Saint-Germain never appeared at the police station. In fact... To everyone's shock, he had completely vanished overnight, leaving the majority of his belongings behind. Legend suggests that upon breaking into his house, the police were cautious and in great anticipation of what they might encounter. On the second floor of the house, they discovered a series of open but corked wine bottles. Upon closer investigation, they discovered that large collection of bottles were filled with a terrifying mixture of wine along with large quantities of human blood. Jacques Saint-Germain was never seen again. He disappeared just as mysteriously as he had arrived. As one can only imagine, his contemporaries were shocked at this scandal, feeling both betrayed and fooled, and probably a little disappointed that the fun had come to an end. Jacques Saint-Germain or the Comte de Saint-Germain questions remain unanswered and this is where the legend of Jacques Saint-Germain as a vampire began to flourish. Had the Comte Saint-Germain in the 1700s made his way to America? 20th century New Orleans socialites noted Jacques Saint-Germain's resemblance to 18th century nobleman the Comte de Saint-Germain and the similarities between the two don't end there. The stories of both Saint-Germain's closely parallel each other, although the elder has a great deal more written material to sink your teeth into. So much mystery, speculation, exists in writings around the Comte's persona that at times one could almost conclude him a fictional character. But for the fact that many affluent leaders and prominent personalities of the time make note of his existence, it seems a little bit of fact. Well, now, that's enough about, you know, southern vampires. Let's head over to New England. The last recorded incidents of a vampire panic in America actually occurred in the New England state of Rhode Island. You see, in the 1890s, the Brown family of 
Exeter began suffering from a tuberculosis epidemic that was then rampaging across North America. In January 1892, Mercy Brown followed her older brother, older sister, and mother into the grave. When another Brown child, Edwin Brown, fell ill with consumption, the villagers decided that drastic measures were in order. On March 17, 1892, after receiving permission from the family patriarch, George Brown, villagers and a local doctor exhumed the bodies of the dead Browns. They found that Mercy's body showed signs of life, such as long fingernails and long hair. The investigators also found blood on Mercy's lips, thus convincing them that she was sucking her brother's blood. In keeping with New England custom, the doctor removed Mercy's heart, which apparently still contained blood, burned it to ashes, then mixed the ashes with water. This concoction was fed to Edwin, who managed to cling to life for just a little while longer. Many scholars continue to debate the origins of New England's vampire folklore. The two most common theories are, one, that it was based on older English folk tales about revenants, and two, it provided an explanation for the tuberculosis epidemics that were so common before the 20th century. That wasn't the only vampire case in New England. It was actually a big, big panic. Abigail Staples, for example. In February 1796, the Cumberland Town Council granted permission for Stephen Staple to exhume the body of his 23-year-old daughter, Abigail, who had died of consumption. Shortly after Abigail's death, her sister, Lavina, had started showing the familiar symptoms of consumption as well. Lavina told of dreams in which a shadowy figure sat heavily on her chest and drew out her breath. During one of those dreams, she reportedly called out Abigail's name. The town officials consented that Staples could try an experiment to save Lavina's life, despite noting the decision was made against the better conscience of the council. There's no record of what came of the exemption, or for that matter, of Lavina. One of the earliest known cases of New England vampirism to have a name attached to it was that of Rachel Harris, who died of tuberculosis in 1790. The year after her death, her widower, Captain Isaac Burton, married her stepsister, Holda. Before long, Holda began exhibiting symptoms similar to Rachel's, and family and friends therefore reasoned that Rachel was the culprit. In February 1793, more than 500 Manchester residents braved frigid temperatures to watch the liver, heart, and lungs be removed from Rachel's exhumed corpse and burned on a blacksmith's forge. According to some versions of the tale, portions of the organs were preserved to make a medicine for Holda. Regardless, she died that September. Following her death, did the good people of Manchester realize the error of their ways? Sort of. They reasoned that perhaps Rachel hadn't been a vampire at all, but rather a witch. Well, that's all I have for you. And here we are at the last episode of the season. 
it's been a good run and hopefully i'll see all you guys in the fall when we come back with season two and for season two things are going to be a little bit different we're going across the whole world this time from country to country a bunch of urban legends around the world so stay safe stay sane see you on halloween <laughs>